I like the saying that the bicycle is both the past and the future of mobility in cities. And there's no other more efficient form of transportation than a bicycle, as far as energy output, as far as enjoyment from doing it. And so I kind of recognized early on that if we add bike lanes to places, the benefits just keep compounding on each other. Hi, everyone. You've tuned in to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity in our communities. It's so wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Saturday, July 4th, 2020. For those of you here in the United States, happy Independence Day, folks. It's certainly going to be a different kind of celebration with 40 of 50 states reporting dramatic increases in COVID-19 infection rates, hospitalizations, and deaths. Please, 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 wherever you are, exercise due caution by staying at home as much as you can, maintaining physical distancing if you do go out, and wear a face covering whenever physical distancing can't be achieved. Okay, enough for the public service announcement. This episode features a fascinating conversation with Curtis Rogers, co-founder and COO of Parkade, an innovative company dedicated to changing our relationship with car parking. He also serves on the city of Austin, Texas's Bicycle Advisory Council and is an enthusiastic advocate for safer streets for everyone. It's a long one, so I'll keep this intro short and let's roll right into my conversation with Curtis. Enjoy. I am absolutely delighted to welcome into the Active Towns podcast, Curtis Rogers. Curtis, how are you, sir? Doing good. Thanks. Appreciate it. We are both in Austin, Texas now. The last time you and I spoke, you were in California. We're not in the same room. We're, we're doing this digitally. How are you, sir? Welcome back to Austin. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great to be back. You know, it's it's interesting comparing California and Austin. There's definitely more of a heightened awareness around you. I found that Sometimes I'm forgetting that there's even a pandemic just because of the lack of interactions on day-to-day basis sometimes. I found that paddleboarding seems to be the perfect social distancing activity. You get outside, you get fresh air, and there's a lot of distance between you and everyone else on the water. So that's been sort of my one thing that I sort of found some normalcy in the pandemic times is doing something active and, you know, keeping social distance from everyone else. That's awesome. Are you going out right here on Lady Bird Lake? Yeah, I luckily have a house really close to the lake, so I just attach my uh, paddleboard trailer to my bike and just ride on down. Oh, I love those. Those are awesome. So you live on the east side of town, correct? I'm on the east side, yes. Fantastic. So obviously we've seen a little bit of cool stuff going on the ground there on the east side along Komal. We've got the new Healthy Streets Initiative. Have you had a chance to check that out? Yeah, it's just phenomenal. I mean, obviously, I have to preface everything around like the the benefits of the pandemic are obviously secondary. We first want to be mostly concerned to make sure everyone has food and shelter and every all the basic needs. But as far as the improvements that we're seeing to urban mobility, I think that we're taking a big step in the right direction. Some of my neighbors actually scheduled a walk of Kamal. So we just kind of walked it just to kind of check it out. It's nice to wave to the people passing on bikes and things like that. 
And then we just decided on the spot last week we were going to have dinner in the street. You know, we enjoy sort of these urban opportunities to do things like that. Normally, it would take a lot of planning and you have to, you know, submit a permit to block off the street, to do dinner in the street. So we just put out chairs, had a nice social distancing experience and got to order pizza from a local place and just had dinner in the street. So, um, yeah, it's phenomenal. And I hope we can continue expanding it. Yeah. Well, clearly you're a rebel. That's that's for <laughs> sure. Eating in the in the middle of the street there. So, with that said, let, let's dive into a little bit of your background. How did you come to to Austin, and how did you come to to be interested and passionate about these types of things? Yeah, my path of I guess becoming a new urbanist was not very traditional. I grew up in Tyler, Texas, and sort of thought that you had to get everywhere everywhere by car, and that was pretty much the norm. And then Worked in mobility for my entire career, first a Ford Motor Company, and then things really kind of started to change when I took a job out in California for a little company called Zimride that eventually became Lyft. And so early on, the CEO of Zimride and now Lyft, he really kind of showed me some early stuff, mostly giving me Donald Shoup's book and saying, you know, parking is our biggest problem. Parking is the reason. Free parking is really preventing a lot of other things from really taking off. And it really started to get the ball rolling on me recognizing how the land use and how we kind of give parking or give land free to automobiles and make it expensive for humans. I kind of just caught the bug and realized our progress is going to be limited unless we recognize these big things. And so after obviously working for a while at Zimride and Lyft, I really sort of kind of recognized the opportunity that we have with mobility and land use. And I just couldn't ignore it. And that kind of led me down the next path of a co-worker and I at Lyft actually got into parking management. While we were at Lyft, we took over the parking lot and kind of made it our own experiment. And we realized there's a huge opportunity in adding just a little bit of technology to an existing parking lot and then letting people better manage it, letting people have better data, adding payment options. And that led us to forming our new company, Parkade. Yeah. You brought up a, a whole bunch of really cool things that we could talk about in in that little uh, overview. But before we dive into Donald Shoup's book and, and all things uh, parking related, uh, you're also an advocate or, or passionate about bicycling, correct? Yeah, it's, you know, one of those funny things, I guess, in my early days, I wasn't really aware of all of the issues around parking. But I did, I knew some things for sure. And that was, you know, I enjoyed biking more than driving. I enjoyed, um, you know, just the social aspects of biking. I enjoyed the physical activity of biking. And, you know, I, I like the saying that the bicycle is both the past and the future of mobility in cities. And, There's no other more efficient form of transportation than a bicycle as far as energy output, as far as enjoyment from doing it. And so I kind of recognized early on that if we add bike lanes to places, the benefits just keep compounding on each other. It's it's sort of one of those things. I know we we see roads for cars, you know, asphalt is designed to withstand vehicles and tires and things like that. But the idea that it can be for other things, primarily bike lanes, just kind of like caught on with me. Yeah, yeah. And if you make it really, really convenient for people to be able to get to meaningful destinations by, you know, walking, biking, using transit, 
And, you know, more people will consider doing that. You mentioned bike lanes and I'll also, you know, interject. Yeah. Making sure that there's really convenient, attractive places for people to lock up their bikes uh, when visiting a, you know, a retail sector or, you know, a, a restaurant, a bar, et cetera. I mean, that's low hanging fruit, right? Yeah. It, you know, induced demand goes both ways. We often talk about induced demand only in the form of adding car lanes or adding parking spaces and things like that. But induced demand 100% goes both ways. If you widen the sidewalks, if you add good bike facilities, whether it's good bike lanes, protected bike lanes, or safe places to store your bikes, you will see people move that direction. And I think that we have to look at induced demand as a feature, not a bug sometimes, and say, how can we use this behavioral tool and get more people to at least experiment with bikes, experiment with walking? That was one of the funny things that popped up when I moved to San Francisco was, you know, I would drive places. We actually carpooled to the office a lot. And one day, you know, I was kind of annoyed with my coworker was taking too long to pick me up to carpool to the office. And I said, you know, I'm just going to try walking. I had never walked to work in my entire life. I was probably 30 years old when this happened. And I realized I could get to, I could walk to work in 30 minutes. And that was a privilege. Obviously, not everyone can do that. It's a very San Francisco thing to do. But just the idea of testing out biking, testing out walking, if we have the facilities that really make it easy, we'll see more people experiment with it. And hopefully, they will continue to do it as a regular habit. Yeah, that that's a, actually a powerful story that you just had there. <laughs> you had never done it, and you're just like, "Why not? Give it a try." <sighs> what did that mean for you when you when you did that? And you know, how, how did that? What were some of the lasting learnings that that emerged from that experience? Yeah, it was really kind of eye opening in just the concept of having multiple options to do a trip. We too often buy a car, and when as soon as you buy a car, you've made that big investment, and each trip is really cheap, so you just automatically think, this is how I get places. Is It's just, I just take my car everywhere. And having mobility options is really just amazing. Like, And I understand this is a privilege of maybe like not having children and having, like obviously, living in a city that has different mo- mobility options. But just being able to wake up and, and look at the weather, look at you know the timing and say, what can I do today? And if you can walk, if you can bike, if you can take a ride share, if you can carpool, there are a lot of options out there for people now. And it's only getting better with scooters and bike share and things like that entering cities to where people can start saying, you know, maybe I don't need that parking pass. Maybe I don't need to just consider like my constant everyday trip has to be in a car. So I think having options and being aware of your options is really important. I've even taken people who, whether you're moving to a new city or you know people that are visiting, I say, oh, just grab the bus. Oh, just grab a bike share. It's really easy. And they were like, I'm not familiar with that. I need you to hold my hand. And so I've actually ridden on the bus with friends. I've, I've taken them on their first you know, jump bike ride or city bike share or things like that. Just because I think it's really important to have a mentor in these things. We teach people how to drive when they turn 16 and we make sure they're fully equipped on using everything on the road and, and using any type of vehicle. But we don't equip people with the different modes of mobility, whether that's biking with someone to work or 
showing them the best route to walk to work or understanding the sort of the different tools and mobility they have. So I think the more and more we kind of explain, the more and more we hold someone's hand through the experience the first time, they'll really become more familiar with it. Let's dive into that all things parking related for automobiles, and then we'll circle back around to parking of bikes and how that also can induce the demand, induce the behavior that we'd like to see. Yeah, one of the early things that we recognized was simply charging for parking doesn't actually solve the problem because when you charge someone for parking, whether it's annual or semester at a college, or if you charge them at the beginning of the month, that's the down payment that they've made to where every single trip they make after that is free. So free parking or monthly parking, you're going to get the same result, which is people are going to be driving every single day because they've already made that investment. They say, why would I ride my bike to work if I've paid for this parking spot? And so we kind of recognize that we had to find a good way to offer daily parking. And we, so we, we built the app basically so that everyone could on any day they need to drive, they could have access to parking. And that was the important thing also is if you have someone that normally likes to ride their bike to, to the office, but they, sometimes they have to drive. And so we basically want to give them the ability and the confidence that they can have that parking spot on a day. They can pay a little bit of money for it, but it's going to be available if they want it. So, And then on the flip side, we realize that culturally in America, people still have to drive. We want to recognize that not everyone has mobility choices, whether it's their location they live or maybe they have to drop off kids at school. A lot of people have to drive to the office 100 or 99% of the time. That's just the reality. So we wanted to make sure we we're serving that group. And so we built into the system that you can actually have a dedicated parking spot. You can have a spot that you park in that spot every single day, but we wanted to give them a nudge to give it up on days that they might have an alternative. So we allow them to actually push that spot back into the marketplace so that a daily commuter can actually buy it back. So they can push the, they can basically give the spot back to the company and then they can make it available for a daily commuter. And one thing we realized when we did this at Lyft headquarters in San Francisco was we had a couple of people who they had commute options. And if it was a beautiful day, they're like, I can ride my bike today and I can make $10 back. So that was sort of the unique thing that we found was how do we offer great parking experience for the people that have to drive, but also continue to nudge them to use alternatives, work from home, whatever they, they choose to do. Yeah, that's a wonderful strategy because it really dives into the, the concept of behavior change and if you can create a situation where there's a nudge, there's an incentive for somebody to to change behavior, then that kind of fits hand in hand with what we were talking about before. Let's empower individuals to be able to change their behavior. So that little nudge of, oh, by the way, I can maybe earn some money back on giving up this parking spot and you know, Curtis over here, my buddy in the office has said, hey, he'll he'll help show me how to do that whole bike commute thing and get me up to speed and feeling like that. Is that kind of what we're talking about in terms of, you know, the the, the two different sides of that? Yeah. And, and sort of that opportunity, I think bike to work day is a great opportunity. It's a great example of how you can kind of ask everyone in the office, if biking is an opportunity, please try it today. 
And the other thing that we like to say we can do with charging for parking is it creates a fund that can be pushed to alternative transportation. So if you need funds to host a bike to work day, if you need funds to build a bike facility, if you need funds to offer an emergency ride home, if you bike to work and a thunderstorm hits, which we know that happens in Austin a lot, you know, you have funding from for, for that from parking. And the other thing I'll add to the parking side of it, you know, when I say charge for parking, it really, a lot of red flags go up for people and they say, oh, we can't charge for parking at work. You know, no one will be happy about this. People are going to leave their jobs. Um, one thing that we've really recommended is don't do the whole parking lot. You can just assign five spots and say, hey, these are available. If you want to if you want to manage this spot monthly, if you want to buy it for a day, you know, pick five spots close to the door and just say, hey, these are available. If you need to make a reservation, if you want to park, if you want the Rockstar parking, you know, you can just pay two dollars a day for it. So it doesn't have to be expensive and you can make it only part of the lot. And that way, the people that don't want that experience they can just continue parking for free but it changes the mindset just a little bit to say this is something of value you know we fight wars over land and yet somehow we say you get it for free if you own an automobile so it just sort of changes the narrative a little bit to say this is something of value and you can pay if you want to opt in for that experience right right yeah so Based on what you've experienced and seen with this creating this app and, and creating this program, how do you think we can apply some of these concepts for changing behavior towards uh, and, and maybe giving you know businesses uh, some insights as to how they can encourage behavior when it comes to people coming to their businesses and, and, and the mode, the choice that they choose to use? Yeah, it's going to vary by city, obviously. Having a host of alternatives is going to be really important. And one of the nice things that Bike Share and things like Uber and Lyft have done is it's really shifted a lot of people who are sort of those low-hanging fruit people who've said, you know, I don't want to own a car in the city. And having these different alternatives is a great way to do that. So it's sort of saying... This is, this is a new benefit you can offer to your employees. If you talk about charging for parking at work, people are going to say, no, that's like a depreciation of benefits. I'm not going to take something. I'm not going to take free parking away from my employees. We're saying, no, 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 you're not taking away free parking. You're adding a new parking benefit, which is the ability to reserve a space if you want that. So it's sort of changing the dialogue to say, don't take away the benefits, which you know, free parking is important for companies. We understand that. So it's just saying if a, if an employee wants the consistency of parking in the same spot every day, or if they're an alternative commute person and they want to drive someday, but they don't have a parking pass, they don't normally have that access, you can give that to them. And we can do it with really simple technology. We don't have to put gates in. We can really do it most of the with most of the in infrastructure being virtual, as in on the app. And it's really minimal as far as what they have to do in the parking lot. So we mostly just say, offer a new benefit to your employees. Why are you depriving of them of the ability to reserve a parking spot? So it sounds like you're really, your, your primary customers are employers, larger employers. We expect that to be. It's a new product on the corporate side. We have been operating for a while in condo buildings. We allow, because a condo comes with a parking spot, you might not own a car, but they say, you know, your realtor says you have to buy the parking spot with the condo. So it's bundled. 
And that's just the way it is with condos these days. So in those situations, we allow the condo owner to sell their parking spot back to their other residents in the building, not to the public. And so we've seen a lot of opportunities around that. And so that's sort of been the genesis to help us get back into the corporate side. It's really, it is a product for cities. It's not going to be a, a, a product for like rural situations. And it's a product for companies that have bundled parking on site. So, you know, companies that are like downtown, they might have a parking garage across the street that they contract with. That probably won't change, but we see sort of the best opportunity with corporate parking lots that have no management, that have nothing smart about them. We can take those from zero to one and make a big difference in how their people commute. Excellent. And how can people find out about this particular product and and the app? Yeah, the website is parkade.com. That's P-A-R-K-A-D-E. And most of the information is there. You can email hello at parkade.com for more information. And we're just really excited because the opportunities around what's happening with commuting right now is really interesting. You know, obviously we want to, we want to get out of this COVID situation and hopefully be stronger for it. Um, a lot of companies are now shifting for work from home or they're going to be doing staggered uh, work schedules. So people are going to be coming in part days or certain days of the week. We hope that we can be an asset to those situations and help companies sort of emerge into back to something of normalcy. Yeah. So you're also, I believe, serving on the Bicycle Advisory Committee. Is that correct for the city of Austin? Yeah, Bicycle Advisory Council in Austin. Yep. Tell us a little bit about that experience. How did, how did that come to be? Yeah, so one of our mutual friends, Katie, she actually sort of introduced me to the BAC and sort of got me interested in that. And, and my experience with city government is very minimal. I, I enjoy going and doing public speaking and things like that at City Hall, but I didn't really see a great opportunity for someone like me whose ideas were somewhat radical. You know, I'm kind of like, let's put bike lanes everywhere a little too often. But the BAC gives a really great opportunity where we can actually make recommendations to the transportation department and sort of hopefully nudge them in different directions and let them explore different ways of doing things. And and obviously, I see things from a different perspective because some of my experience is more around parking. And I think I think how we I, most of what I've talked about on the BAC is how can we make recommendations for car culture and, you know, the recommendations they make for cars because that will benefit the bikes at the same time. So I've kind of focused on how can we sort of make car policies a little different to make bikes on a level playing field. Yeah, it's interesting because what we see, especially in uh, countries that are being very successful with their infrastructure, such as Denmark and, and also the Dutch, is that they're seeing satisfaction rates of motor vehicle drivers going up and up and up as the number of uh, individuals choosing to, to ride bikes and take transit and walking continue to increase. And so you're seeing this balancing out of mode share. And the, the, for the folks who still have to and must drive or choose to drive, their level of satisfaction is is actually going up just because the infrastructure is so well balanced. Is that something that you're you're envisioning, or is that part of your your, your utopia that you're uh, dreaming about here for the United States? 
Absolutely. I love having conversations with drivers and, you know, I'll often hear they immediately like saying like, I hate it when these bikes are in the same lane as me. And I always say, believe me, no one hates that more than I do. Like, like the idea of a Shero being a convenient bike path is just a joke. Like, so I, I really often say like the idea of share the road should not be share the lane. You know, the idea of share the road should be let's like have a separated bike path so that you don't have to interact with the bike. You know, there's a lot of great opportunities with different bike paths can be configured different ways. You know, I think one of the things that's been talked about in Austin recently is, is Congress Ave, sort of the main street of Texas leading up to the Capitol. And we have Sharrows in the right lanes. And if you've ever ridden on that, it is a high level of discomfort to ride on Congress, which should be this amazing, you know, boulevard we have leading up to the Capitol. So I think we're going to see some, some interesting conversations about how we can convert that. And if the car owners are worried about, you know, this is taking a lane away. Well, I mean, you can say that all of the lanes, the cars took away from the horses back in the day. So this is a mobility lane. It's not a car lane. And so we have to look at it as like, what's the best use of this? And in some ways, I think there are opportunities for bikes. I'm not asking for a bike lane to be next on I-35 or anything like that. I think there are just certain streets that I think we can convert a lot of people to bikes if given the facilities. Yeah, actually, you have a, a lot of stuff there that I'd love to unpack. First thing that I'd like to do is just uh, for the listeners that are, are not familiar with some of the, the terms that we're throwing about, uh, a Shero is essentially a marking in the travel lane, it's basically a chevron with a, an icon of a, a bicycle or a person on a bike. And the intent is that, you know, this is a shared lane, meaning that a person on a bike and a person driving a car are going to share that space. And to your point, there's there's an appropriate place for, for having shared space and, and then there's an inappropriate <laughs> environment. And what you described on our Congress Avenue would definitely be considered an inappropriate area. Congress Avenue looks like a, a runway with multiple, multiple lanes, and it encourages motor vehicle speeds in excess of 30, 40 miles per hour, uh, depending on the situation and the lights, whether they're all green or not. And so that would be completely inappropriate to put a more vulnerable user in the middle of the road. Earlier, we talked about the Healthy Streets Initiative uh, there on Kamal, and that has been transformed sort of overnight into essentially shared space. It is still actually technically open for motor vehicle drivers to be able to get to their desired destination, but it clearly is now marked as a an environment where it's shared. And so you have pedestrians, you have people on bikes, you have people on rollerblades, you have people, you know, skateboards. It's meant to create extra space so that people can physically distance during this current terrible pandemic that we're in the midst of. And that is very analogous to a, a shared street environment such as a Woonerf, which is a Dutch approach to a shared street. And, and essentially the definition of that is that the motor vehicle driver is allowed, but is a guest and therefore must adjust their, their driving behavior to understand that they, 
need to slow down, be attentive. You've got more vulnerable users in, in the street space there. So that would be a more appropriate <laughs> environment for uh, motor vehicles and more vulnerable users to share space. So in North America, we're working on this. We're working on <laughs> up in our game in terms of producing and creating protected space, but that comes at a very, very high cost. What the city of Austin has done, what the city of Denver has done, many, many other cities around the world is overnight do lighter, quicker, cheaper. Let's create new pop-up infrastructure. Let's make these streets a little bit calmer. And oh, by the way, we understand for, for those of you who must drive, you still need to have some access, but please just slow down. Comment a little bit about that because you're, you're living it. You're very, very close to this particular installation. Yeah, and I think what they're doing is is sort of the best approach. If you put what you just described on paper and put it in front of the Austin population, which is primarily drivers, let's just be realistic, you know, it, it's not going to pass. You know, it's politically disastrous just to put on paper and say, we're going to shift the lanes, we're going to make this street not as much for cars, it's going to be slower to drive through. If you use words like that, like, like, you know, repurpose pavement or slow down driving speeds, it doesn't work. You know, people just, we like to drive, we like to get places fast, despite the dangers of it. What I've read about and what I've seen is the best way to convince someone of this is they have to feel it. They have to, we can't put it out to committee. We can't vote on things. Um, You know, democracy doesn't always work towards the best outcome sometimes if we can't really get a sense of what we're voting on. And so I think these pilot projects are really our best opportunity to say, I know this sounds crazy, but we're just going to do this test. We're going to do a pilot, talk about it in temporary terms. And that way it gives people the sense of, of experiencing these things. It gives them the sense of like dust off your bike and ride it down the street because suddenly it's a hundred times safer than it was before. And you get to do these social things that we're now appreciating because of the lockdown and our social activities are sort of been minimized. So I think that getting people to feel it, getting people to walk down the sidewalk and suddenly realize like, why am I not concerned walking on the sidewalk? Oh, I have this protected bike lane that is serving as a barrier between me and the moving vehicles. These things, and I'm talking from personal experience, I didn't recognize these things for most of my life. I didn't realize like why some sidewalks are really uncomfortable to walk on until you sort of like experience a different culture, experience a different street design. And I understand that I have the benefit of being able to travel to a foreign country and do that. Not everyone has that. So I think it's important for cities to test things like this so that we make sure that everyone locally has the opportunity to really feel what it's like to being able to walk and bike and not have to worry about getting hit by a car. When we return, Curtis reflects a bit more on when and why he became so passionate about the connection between motor vehicle parking, urbanism, and active mobility. But first, a quick word about our sponsors for this episode. The generous contributors to Active Towns, including our monthly donors out on our various platforms, including Patreon, Facebook, and via our donate page on our website. I really appreciate your continued support of the initiative, and I simply could not produce this content without your assistance. Thank you. 
For those of you in a position to help out, please consider making a one-time tax-deductible donation or becoming a monthly contributor. Trust me when I say no amount is too small, as it all adds up and helps to offset our monthly obligations in this movement to promote a culture of activity for all ages and abilities. Okay, that's all for this break. Let's get back to our conversation with Curtis Rogers. So you mentioned something there in terms of not previously having this awareness. What was what was the moment that really sort of triggered that that awareness? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I wish I had documented this along the way to really know when I became a radical for bike lanes and and everything like active transportation. Uh, I think mostly uh, one of the big things was recognizing the cost of parking. And because, because parking doesn't cost anything or rarely costs anything to the driver, we have the idea that it's cheap to build and it's cheap to maintain. And it's just not the case. I was listening to a webinar last night where there was a town in California that is, is looking at building a parking garage for $120,000 per parking space. So you could basically buy a luxury vehicle for every person for the same price that it would cost to build that parking garage. And I think that sort of the awareness of how much parking costs and then applying that to as a subsidy for what we do for drivers. So I think that was the biggest thing is obviously land costs are continuing to go up. And so putting putting the, the price of land and the price of construction for parking was really eye-opening. And then on the other side of that, sort of testing out different things, testing out, you know, walking to work, walking more and biking more. You just recognize the satisfaction that you have from that. Um, when I moved to San Francisco, I sold my car and bought a bike. And it was a big deal. That was pre, pre-Uber and Lyft. It was impossible to get a cab. At the time that we created Lyft, about half the office didn't own cars. And that was really a big motivation for us. We wanted to create something that we would benefit from as non-car owners to make sure that we could continue to live either car light or car free and have something like that. So I think that, you know, being able to drop the car, being able to, you know, experience other modes of transportation was really eye opening. It sounds like the, you know, part of that uh, epiphany for you was, was even opening that book, The High Cost of Free Parking by Donald Shoup, because you mentioned that, you know, that awareness of the cost. And then earlier, you also sort of mentioned, you know, starting to better understand land use and urbanism and things of that nature. Uh, talk a little bit more about that maturation of how that <laughs> it was probably like a, a, a waterfall of, of epiphanies and things, uh, you know, awareness that has started to happen for you. Yeah, it was really like the first thing probably was kind of understanding the cost of parking and just like that aha moment, like, wait, it costs how much to build a parking garage? And then we can't use that land for something else. We can't use that land for green space or like even a business that would be generating sales tax revenue. That was kind of the big thing. And then once I started, you know, looking at videos that Professor Shoup had made and and sort of just diving in on that, you know, you talk about the podcasts are also sort of a big way. You look at Strong Towns, The War on Cars, Active Towns, all of these great podcast content, which I actually started consuming a lot more of when I was walking to work. So it's sort of that double dose of as I'm, you know, walking to work as a commute, I'm also consuming this information as to why the benefits of this are so important. 
it's difficult to nail down one particular thing, but once you start getting into it, once you start recognizing the benefits of walking and biking, it's hard to ignore. And, and I get a little obsessive sometimes. My friends and family are tired of me preaching about why parking is so destructive to cities and things like that. So I have to remember that I should have other hobbies and things like that. But it's once you once you learn about the main points, it's really impossible to ignore. Let's let's pivot just a little bit and and talk a little bit more about Austin and what brought you to Austin and why are you so passionate about making a difference here in this city? Yeah, it was uh, sort of just an opportunity when I left Lyft and knew I wanted to do something different. I had an opportunity to sort of be mobile and I could sort of work from wherever. And, you know, being from Texas, you know, it's home. Texas is always going to be home for me. Culturally, you know, Austin was a better fit for me. You know, I love Tyler, Texas. I lived in Dallas as well. They're great places. But sort of the opportunity to where I could sort of relate to a lot of the people culturally, the bike community and things like that were obviously really important. So, I, you know, like, unfortunately, like a lot of people, you know, you see, you visit Austin and you want to move there, you know, that's just the reality of how it is. And so I sort of saw Austin or people often question how, you know, culturally, like, why would I want to live in Texas? Why, you know, Texas still is a car king, the car is king, you know, it, it doesn't really appear to be that progressive in a lot of ways when it comes to transportation and land use. And I have to say, but that's our opportunity to move the needle. If you look at all these other places, look at Boulder, Colorado, or Palo Alto, California, and you think those are places that they're not going to be able to move the needle nearly as far and make as big of a difference as we can in Texas. So I kind of saw that as sort of the big thing. And and there's a big shift occurring right now. Uber and Lyft obviously came out in you know 2012 and have made a big impact then bike share and scooter share having a big impact on places like Austin. And every time we get another option like that, another group of people considers either going car free or car light. I think that's what the big difference between cities and suburbs should be. If you're thinking about moving to a place like Austin or really any city and you're saying, well, I could live in the suburbs or I could live in the city. If I live in the suburbs, I can have much bigger house. But if I live in the city, we can only own one car. We can get by with one car. And that's where I think the big difference has to be. I talked to friends who have been shopping, you know, for house houses in Austin or other places. And they say, oh, but, you know, the cost is so much more expensive in the city. And I say, yeah, but have you factored in the transportation costs? And in my neighborhood, particularly, we're not far from downtown. And a lot of people that are moving in, they're saying, we pick this neighborhood because we only needed one car. And when you only need one car, you can get away with $100,000 more towards the home. And the other side of that is that second vehicle is going to be depreciating the whole time. Whereas that $100,000 you're able to invest in the home, you're going to make more money on that when the home appreciates. So I think we have to change how we look at cities and say, cities are places where students should be able to live car-free and households should be able to live with one car. It's already happening without us like trying to push it that direction. But I think a place like Austin, if we can shift more students to car-free, whether it's high school students or UT students, and give give homes the opportunity to get by with only one vehicle, that's where we're going to see the massive shift occur. Right, right. 
And it's interesting too, it's, it's really been apparent in the last five years, especially uh, in your neighborhood, the gentle densification that is happening. And I use the term gentle only because we're, I'm not talking about 20-story towers. I'm talking about the, the main urban corridors, the commercial corridors have been thickening up and we're seeing buildings in the three to four, maybe maximum five-story heights, much more housing coming in, a lot of nice mixed-use developments. Wow, it's every time I head over to that side of town, I'm just blown away by that transformation. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I live close to East Cesar Chavez Street, and uh, I see a lot of the developments happening around there. I will say that some of the small developments, what we often call the missing middle, which is, you know, density doesn't have to be a high rise tower, it can also be three stories tall. A lot of these these three-story tall apartments are kind of impossible to build with the parking requirements. And so I, I think it's important to talk about the parking requirements. It's also in t- important to talk about the tools that we can give neighborhoods around residential parking permits and things like that, because I think there are some RPP solutions that we can offer to neighborhoods to help ease their concerns around park cars coming into the neighborhood. That's really the big concern is that you know, it's going to look like there's a concert happening every weekend when these apartment people are parking in the neighborhood. So I think there are some concerns we have to take care of and offer good tools to them. But I, I do I do have to say that as much as I love what's occurring as far as more people getting to live in Austin, I don't think we're going to experience the benefits of that if we assume one car per person. If you look at a lot of these developments that are happening on Plaza Saltillo and East 7th Street and things like that. I think that we, it's great. You know, a lot of these people are going to patronize the businesses. We're going to help the local businesses get more, more business, more sales tax revenue. And all those things are great. But the, our success will be limited if everyone is expected to own a car. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to get into the game of saying like, I want this person to live there, not this person. But I'm happy to say that I would rather people live there that don't own vehicles versus car owners. You know, if we can have someone that works locally who can walk or ride their bike to work, that's better than having someone who works at Dell up in Round Rock. Because if we tell people, you can live here, we have this idea of, oh, you can have it all. You can live downtown Austin and you can work wherever you want to. Well, that's true. You might be miserable, you know, spending two hours in the car every day. I think we have to change the conversation a little bit and say, these are housing options that are meant for people who don't own cars. And and when I say people that don't own cars, I hope that everyone hearing that doesn't immediately make me think of hipsters that just graduated from college. The biggest car-free population are low-income people. And we have to recognize that we can build more low-income housing if we don't require the parking, if we actually don't expect them to own cars. You know, we have a lot of job opportunities in Austin that they might not be high paying jobs. If we can equip those people with housing on a bus line or housing on a good bike route, I think we can really serve the low income population as well. But we have to get creative and we have to assume not everyone's going to own a vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, uh, again, a lot to unpack in, in, in that little uh, segment there. 
Probably the thing that bubbles up to the top most uh, prominently for me is what you talked about in terms of the requirement of parking and how that flips the switch on in terms of what we can afford to build. And specifically, you mentioned, you know, the, the missing middle housing that makes it that much more difficult for a smaller developer to create something there. And you got to bake in the, that cost of, of parking. And you pointed out it's so incredibly expensive to do. Yeah, there's really no getting around it. I think that to say, I have to also say like dropping parking requirements doesn't mean not building parking. You know, parking is going to be important for places. They're going to still have to sell apartments and condos to someone. And, and there is some expectations of owning cars. Some of these people are going to own cars. They're going to need cars. So when I say drop parking requirements, I'm not saying don't build any parking. If the developer wants to get aggressive with that, that's great. But it really is just saying, like, let's let the parking that we build match the market that we have. You know, right now, even if we drop parking requirements, a lot of developers are going to continue to build parking because that's what the market demands in a lot of cases. But cities getting rid of parking requirements just really lets them start to test it. You know, a lot of the playbook that they have when it comes to these developments, you look at these things called the Texas Donut, to which to people outside of Texas is basically an apartment complex with a big concrete piece in the middle, which is the parking garage. And so we have the developers have this playbook and the playbook came from the parking requirements or all of the land use requirements that cities gave them. So they're going to continue to build these things for some time. I don't think we have to be concerned that they're immediately going to stop building all parking. But I think it's important for cities to recognize that things are changing and we have to give people the tools that they need to sort of test building for people that don't own cars. My sense, too, is that especially like in a neighborhood like your particular neighborhood where there's an opportunity for a younger professional to be able to find a more affordable place to to hang their hat, whether that's an apartment or maybe making their first uh, purchase at some point with a condo or something along those lines. But being in a situation where they can be, even if they have a car, they can live a more car light lifestyle, meaning that, you know, they can park it and, but still be able to meet most of their their daily needs by either walking, biking, taking transit, maybe even commuting to work. If, you know, let's just use an example, they, they work downtown. It's, it's what, a maximum of two, two and a half miles to, to the core of the downtown and, and the UT campus. Is that about right? Yeah, I think that's really important to mention is like it's going to be an opportunity for certain people who are considering, you know, where they're going to live. And we're seeing it a lot in our neighborhood. Yeah, the, the people who see biking as an opportunity, we hope that we can help create a tool is getting back to sort of the Parkade app a little bit. We hope we can give them a tool to where they can say I can bike on most days, but on certain days I can drive my car if I need to. And on the same time, if they're in an apartment or a condo, we hope that, you know, the person, their neighbors who are in that condo will say, I'm going to sell my car because I can make $200 a month selling my parking spot to my neighbors here. So it's sort of recognizing that there is sort of an opportunity cost with owning a car. Every time that uh, someone says, I don't need to own a car, you know, suddenly that opens up a lot of empty parking spots. So we have to sort of say, how can we make that match up? Sorry, you can go back to, I, I don't know if I answered that question perfectly. <laughs> 
No, no, it's that that's fine. And and what's the, what's funny about this conversation is that whether we're talking about missing middle housing, whether we're talking about incentivizing different mobility choices, parking and specifically free parking is a common thread. So let's talk about you mentioned it earlier. You, you mentioned a term that you know was thrown out there of induced demand, and again, the definition for induced demand is is basically you know being able to create infrastructure that then induces uh, increased usage of that. It's commonly used when we talk about adding an additional travel lane to a freeway. The 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 classic case was the four hundred five freeway in in Los Angeles where they. Uh, invested billions of dollars to add additional capacity to the that 405 freeway. And lo and behold, it lasted for a few months at best. And then, you know, they were back in gridlock. So what happened? We induced more demand. We induced more driving behavior. So let's flip the switch on that. Let's talk about inducing people to ride their bikes to establishments. How can a business owner encourage their patrons to be able to ride bikes to their businesses? And why would they want to do that? What are the, some of the financial incentives that they could benefit from by encouraging that behavior? Yeah, there's some different tools. I think that if we could get point of sale technology to do this, it would be great. But I think it's having a, a more open dialogue with the people that are coming in and saying, how did you get here? Because most often when businesses, specifically, you know, smaller transactions like cafes or something like that, normally they only, they only hear from the people that couldn't find parking. Like, so they think parking is really important because that's the only mobility choice that they hear about. If you walk there, if you bike there, you didn't experience those pains. So you rarely are going to walk in and say, I loved biking here. I loved walking here. But they hear often about how there's no available parking for them. And so they think the parking is the most important. So I think having those options, going back a little bit to the situation we're in with the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of cities, even places like Dallas, are expanding their parklets. So I think parklets are actually a really cool opportunity on each side of the parklet. You can add bike racks. And the other thing the park that does is, on top of being a really good design complement, is having people outside is just more eyeballs on the bikes. You know, if you have to lock up your bike outside and you enter a restaurant or something like that, you know, there's a certain level of anxiety that every person that owns a bike knows where they're constantly like keeping an eye on the bike outside. And they're constantly like, like worried that someone's going to roll up with some kind of a heavy duty bolt cutter and they're just going to snag their bike and steal it. So just having more activity on the street, having more eyeballs on the bikes, I think it'll give people more of a sense of comfort in parking a bike there. And then on top of that, just having more bike facilities that people can park at and also park the scooters and the bike share there. You know, that's sort of the nice thing about bike share that I didn't recognize until I started using it was just not worrying about your bike sitting outside or sort of this, the multimodal experience where you can take a jump bike somewhere and then park it outside. And then if it starts pouring down rain, I can just grab a ride to get back somehow. So it's sort of, I think the shops, I think sort of the places that do business, they often worry about, you know, not having enough parking for their customers. And I understand that. But I think it's more of an awareness of how many people are arriving via other modes. And 
I think there are some really cheap solutions where they could say, you know, if you ride a bike here or if you get here without driving, we'll give you something for free. You know, you can make it chips and salsa, which is really cheap for a Mexican food place to provide. But that actually will help them kind of start recording this. Um, if I can add one last story, I actually take spin classes at a place downtown next to City Hall. And I have the option. I can ride a bike there or I can park there and the spin class will cover my parking. So I've talked to the owner a little bit and I've said, said, you know, I'm already in my my spin gear. I've got my bike shorts on already. It makes a lot more sense for me to bike over here, but you're going to pay for my parking. And so I, I've kind of like convinced him that he's actually making zero dollars off of me <laughs> if, he, if he has to cover my parking. So I think there are cool opportunities. I've seen some other places that do punch cards. If you go to the spin class or you go to the workout class, if you don't arrive by car, you basically walk up and you say, I need this validated or I need you to punch my card to say I didn't drive here. So little things like that, I think we can get businesses to start recognizing how people are arriving and they'll get a better sense of how valuable walking and biking is to the business. Yeah, you actually touched on a couple of really uh, cool things there. Obviously, the incentives, you know, having some sort of an incentivized program to encourage people to come to the establishment by any means other than uh, driving a personal automobile to that location. Uh, Juiceland is a is an example that you know is is just you know, right down here on uh, Barton Springs Road, where they, you know, have a, a prominent sign that says, you know, hey, up top, the, the catbird seating up above the restaurant, that's reserved for anybody who, you know, got to this establishment by walking or biking, you know, not driving a car. The other thing that you mentioned was convenience of parking location for uh, a personal bicycle, making sure that it's truly attractive and feels safe and secure. The other thing that makes me think about that is, you know, being able to repurpose, say you have a, you mentioned the parklet idea, say you have a parking spot or two or three in front of your establishment, being able to convert that on-street parking location to additional seating for your establishment, your restaurant, et cetera, absolutely necessary right now. And we're seeing more of that happening around the country due to the COVID-19 pandemic is repurposing that public space in front of the business to do that. But then also that equation works too with that in induced demand that we're looking for. Hey, let's create a, uh, a bicycle parking facility here that can fit up to 12 bikes, <laughs> you know, into uh, that bike corral versus one automobile. You know, if it's one person per vehicle, I mean, I would much rather have a 12 to one uh, ratio than a one person to one ratio for that parking spot. Talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah. And it kind of ties back into our previous conversation about how this is, this will also benefit drivers. And I make a joke that Austin is the land of dangerous left turns if you're a car driver, because there are a lot of times you have to turn left when you're driving a car in Austin and you can't see a thing. There, you, the blind spots are all over the place and you're just crossing your fingers, there's no car coming. Well, putting a bike corral in the, in the parking spot closest to the intersection, it's a term I learned fairly recently of daylighting the intersection. And you recognize the visibility. If you park a Chevy Suburban 
near the intersection. You can't see anything. The cars can't see anything. They're trying to like inch up into the crosswalk just to get a good visible view. If you put a bike rack there, you're actually improving the experience for the car drivers. So it actually benefits everyone. Now, like I said, it's better if we can sort of let people experience this and not talk about taking that parking spot away. But the other thing that it does is it prevents, if, if you just call it like a, a loading zone or something, people will still continue to park there. Visibility won't, won't improve very much. So I think there's a big opportunity with that. And, and sort of the parklet goes back to sort of that, what I said before about how this is just human space. It's not, it's not car space. It's not bike space. It's just human space. And we can, we can nudge different ideas to say like, oh, how can we try to make this more productive for the business? How do we make it safer in social distancing situations that we're in right now? So I think the the parklet, you know, I was a fan of parklets before this, I'll be honest. <laughs> so um, I think this is just a unique time to where we can show more people the opportunities that we have around that. And, you know, if it, if it helps us get more people on bikes, that's even better. Um, I think the bike opportunities around, you know, taking more parking spaces away on street parking, it's really a big opportunity. So we're coming uh, pretty much uh, to our end here, but I wanted to, to put something out there that is a, a little bit topical given our current situation and given some of the, the recent trends that we're seeing and, and also given your, your previous experience there at Lyft. And that is uh, shared mobility and what the future looks like. Yeah, I think you know, comparing it to a different industry, I've heard a lot of people say that you know, we work failing is not a statement that co-working will fail. And I think, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these, you know, startups are tests. And a lot of startups are tests as to what it's going to take. And, you know, I, I appreciate letting letting them burn venture capital money for the tests instead of public resources. So cities don't have to pay for it as often. Obviously, there, you know, there is a cost to cities when they do experiment like this, but hopefully we can learn a lot through this whole process. And I think that, you know, there are adjustments that we have to make at the moment. You know, now we obviously can't do shared rides in Uber and Lyft for good reason. But I, I do think that we have to look ahead and recognize that we will get to a place where we can introduce these things again. You know, I think there, there's going to be a, a bit of a, a struggle for people using things that you have to touch, you know, whether it's a scooter or a bike, you know. I'm carrying Lysol wipes around far more than I ever have in my life. So I do think that, you know, there, there are going to be challenges coming up, but the answer is not six feet apart in everyone's personal vehicle. That's just not something we can go back to. And I think that Uber and Lyft are going to be fine as far as offering the services that they do. It's unfortunate that we can't do shared rides for a while. It's unfortunate that it looks like the investment in in bikes and scooters is question they're questioning that at this moment. So I, I think that there's a lot of unanswered questions about what things are going to look like one year, two years out. But I'm excited about the opportunity that we have to expand a lot of these. I think that other companies are going to find a better solution. If if it's not going to be jump bikes, if if at the very least, if jump bikes exit cities, jump bikes Jump bikes introduce so many people to electric bikes. We're going to see more people buying electric bikes if they can't rent them on jump. 
And that's where I think some of the lasting impacts of these things is, you know, whether or not you can, whether or not the shared mobility thing is going to work. I don't know. It's really hard to build something around, you know, the general public and obviously letting these things sit out in the rain just wasn't going to work. It just, you know, there were flaws in it. And I think that we're going to learn from that and we'll be better off in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all, all good points. And you mentioned also just that, that whole concept too, of, of managing the public space and making sure that, you know, we, when we're talking about trying to incentivize a certain type of behavior and for example, again, using that example of the commercial area of the city and and maybe even a a personal or, or, or an actual uh, business owner, being able to say, hey, yeah, we've we've got this really nice, attractive, visible place for y'all to park your bikes and mobility scooters and shared mobility. Everyone welcome, come here. I mean, that's the type of incentive, that's the type of intra- attractiveness that that sort of supports behavior change. And 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 again, a wonderful use of space because it can pack so many people into that space, whether that's an actually space in the public right of way or is up on someone's property as one of their, you know, their own quote unquote parking area that they've provided. So versus some of the things that we did see out on the streets where we had some businesses that, you know, banned anybody parking micro mobility or a non-personal bike on their property. Yeah. The and disconnect. And there's sort of been this pre-qualification that if I can afford a car, then I have enough disposable income that I'm going to spend more, more at your business. And we have to change that narrative. We have to walk into places. If you, if you throw down a higher than average amount of money at a business, we have to start saying, by the way, I arrived on a bike. You know, we have to make sure they're kind of aware of that. And, and this, pre-qualification to say, like, if you can afford a nice car, then you're probably going to be the patron that spends the most money. I think it's changing. I don't know if all of these places that sell things are aware of that. So I think it's really important that we make sure we're announcing that, you know, if you walk in wearing bike shorts and Lycra and everything, you know, that's one way of saying it. But I think that the, the businesses that see just average people walking in, if they just came off of a line bike or a scooter or something, they look like everybody else. And I think it's really important that businesses start to be aware of where their money is coming in. You know, this is going to be a tough time for businesses for a while. And so the more data that they can have about who is arriving and how they're arriving, I think it's going to be really important. I think that's probably the most important thing that we've said. Being able to be conspicuous about our mobility choice and being proud of saying to these business owners that this is how we got here and we appreciate the steps that you are making to encourage us to do this. For instance, oh, by the way, love that uh, that bike parking space that you have out there out front. I really appreciate that. It's, it's important. It's powerful for them to get that feedback. Uh, likewise, if they're lacking in bike parking, you know, don't be a jerk about it, but, you know, let them know, hey, you know, I just just wanted to let you know that 
<laughs> we got here, you know, and hopefully it's not just one person, you know, hopefully it's a whole bunch of us that show up and say, hey, we got here and we, we, we love coming to this place. But you know what? Gosh, it'd be great if we could have a little bit more, you know, convenient and safe and attractive, inviting parking. Maybe we can help you. Maybe we can, you know, help you provide more space. And, and that's kind of where we can then tap into some of our resources, whether it's Bike Austin, whether it's the uh, Bicycle Advisory Council, whether it's the city of Austin, and be able to say, et cetera, hey, you know, this is something that could help us all. This is a win-win-win all the way around. Yeah, I think it's important for cities to have the tools, like turnkey solutions. So when we when we have difficulty finding a safe place to park a bike, you know, we can walk in and say, you know, you know, it'd be really great if you could do this. And there's a program. You can name the program something to where we can say, hey, businesses, like there's a really easy way for you to do this. You know, there was a bar on Kamal Street. And they were having trouble getting people to come because, you know, it looked like the street was closed. And, you know, so people weren't driving down and and parking to go to the bar. We can save the conversation of parking at a bar for another time. But my answer to that was, well, what if you could put a parklet out there? What if you could put space out there to where it's obvious that you're open? So I think that we could have these easy things where a company can say, let's throw a parklet up really fast. Let's put a bike rack where the parking space used to be because not only are we seeing less people drive here, but we can get more people to encourage biking here. You know, the bike community is strong in Austin. You know, if a, if a business says we're going to go all in on, in, you know, investing in bike facilities, encouraging more people to bike here, the bike community will get behind that and we will ride farther to make sure we support that business. Yeah, and I would even go so far as to say that our real success will be when we're not, quote unquote, the bike community. It's we're just all people and we just chose to get to that destination on that particular day by walking or by riding transit or by, you know, choosing to ride my personal bicycle or a bike share bike or or whatever the mobility device is. And it's not obvious that I am part of this tribe, you know, right? I, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's, you're, 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 quote unquote, you're not decked out in Lycra and you're not clipping, clicking into, you know, the, the restaurant in, in holding a helmet and in cycling shoes. You're just, you're just a normal person that looks like any other normal person that's there. And, oh, by the way, yeah, I did arrive by bike and, you know, hey, Thumbs up for providing that safe, convenient, and inviting uh, bicycle parking. Way to go, business. We really appreciate it. Another thought comes to me when you had mentioned, you know, difficulty with businesses right now of trying to come back and get back up to speed uh, coming out of the pandemic is that concept of, hey, what can we do to maybe have some pop-up mass bike parking and maybe even a bike valet type of situation and, uh, and be able to encourage even more people to be able to get to an establishment uh, without having to drive, which is exactly what we do at all of our big events, whether it's ACL or South by Southwest, where we double, triple, quadruple, 10, 10x the number of parking 
uh, facilities available uh, so that people will be encouraged to, to ride their own bike or take micro mobility, et cetera. Yeah, ACL is one of my favorite examples when people say, no one will go if we take away the parking. Like Austin and hats off to the ACL team because they were really early on and said like, you know, this, there's going to be no parking available. And somehow thousands of people still find their way to get to Zilker Park for ACL. So I, I think it's a great example that we can give people and say, look, like the number of mobility options now has never been better. You know, I guess technically you could still ride a horse, I suppose, but we're, we're gaining more every year, more, more mobility options that we never considered in the past. If, if you own a car and if you arrive by car, you're going to leave by car. You know, that's kind of the funny thing is, you know, a lot of times when I, I talk to people about parking at bars and I say, you know, if you know, that, that space, we can't just assume that space is for designated drivers. You know, if when you make the decision to drink and drive, sorry, this is kind of getting on another subject, but when you make the decision to drink and drive is when you decide to drive to the bar. And if we can encourage more people, if we can do induced demand to get there by walking or biking or bike share, Uber and Lyft, whatever you want to do, you know, you are not going to drink and drive if you got there by another form of transportation. Yeah, that actually reminds me of a recent episode that I recorded with uh, Dom Nazian and Maggie Wadups uh, from Boulder. Uh, they now live in an environment where they can walk and bike to pretty much all the establishments that they like to go to. They're starting to create an, an, uh, a group of being able to go to like a happy hour type of situation. Uh, they had just started to do that before the lockdown, and, and they're looking forward to relaunching that after things start opening up there in Boulder. And that's a, a point that Dom made was that, you know, it's it's safer for him. It's safer for everybody else that they're able to walk to a location, be able to bike to a location and an establishment and, and have a couple drinks and and be able to make their way home safely. So good stuff. Yeah. And I'll add well, one more thing. Um, one of the unexpected things that people are experiencing in this pandemic time they're looking at their car that's parked in the driveway and it's just sitting there. And a lot of households are looking at two cars parked in the driveway and they have two car payments. They, ins they pay insurance on two cars. You know, if people have, a, if you, people can foresee working from home at a higher rate, you know, a lot of people are just going to say, this isn't worth it. We can get away with only owning one car. And I think that's going to be the big shift. And, you know, I, I think, when you compare prices, if you compare prices between, I have a corner store in my neighborhood, which I love, and it's probably cheaper to drive to HEB, but I can't walk to HEB. And so I think that we have to recognize like, yeah, if you drop, if you get rid of one of your cars, maybe you have to make more trips by walking and biking, but you know, you're supporting a local business and you enjoy getting there, which yeah, is always yeah. great. Fantastic. Curtis, any, any final thoughts? Try riding a bike. And if you're already a bike rider, invite a friend. That's really good advice in the sense that, you know, once we do get out of this uh, need for uh, physical distancing, there's a lot of people who are going to need support. And so reach out to your friends and say, you know, hey, we're going to head down to the tavern this evening. 
We'd love for you to come along. They've got wonderful bike parking out there. You know, we can swing by your place and, and pick you up and, and uh, we'll ride together. And hopefully there'll still be a healthy street right there in your neighborhood to be able to do that. Curtis, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. I hope you found this conversation with Curtis Rogers of Parkade to be informative and entertaining. I know I sure did. Please be sure to check out his website at parkade.com. That's P-A-R-K-A-D-E.com as well as the host of additional links I've provided in the show notes. Also included in the show notes are links to our donation options. I hope you'll consider making a contribution. One last thing before we part ways. If you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please be sure to subscribe to it on the listening platform of your preference. And please help us grow our audience by telling a friend or two. Okay, that's all for now. Please take care of yourselves and one another. Until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.